0: We will be reading two passages together today, but our first reading is Genesis chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O oh, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards... They will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gigashites, and Jebusites. Our second reading is Romans chapter 4, starting at uh, verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened by his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is God's word.
1: Let me uh, lead us in prayer as we begin. Father, thank you for the truths that uh, we've sung already this evening, that if we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're a new creation, and we can trust you to See us through to the end of our lives, trusting in you. You've completely done a work of new creation within us. Therefore, we have every reason to have great confidence in you. So, Father, this evening, would you, would you lift our confidence as we study the scriptures together with your spirit? Lift the, our confidence in you as we look at the truths of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. We've, um, I spent a few weeks then, we're starting. Uh, we're in the, looking at the life of Abraham in Genesis, Genesis chapters uh, 12 to 22, uh, for a couple of months or so, and we've said in many ways, Abraham is presented in the New Testament as the man of faith more than any other. Come to a little passage like that in Romans 4 that we just had read, and he's presented as a man who's hoped beyond hope. Um, he, uh, come to Hebrews 11, he's the man of faith, uh, par excellence, and yet... If you're assailed ever by doubts, Abraham's your man. Because even though the New Testament can call him the man of faith, he has his wobbles. He has his doubts. As, as we encounter him in the, the book of Genesis, as we've started over the last few weeks, he keeps asking, okay, you've made a promise to me, Lord. Are you sure is it definitely going to happen? I'm, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Can you help me here because I'm struggling? Not so much with faith, but with assurance of your promises. Uh, it's not a smooth path for Abraham. It's a bumpy path uh, that his faith travels. And so I think for us, it's enormously encouraging. As you just say, one sense, right at the beginning, if you ever have doubts as a Christian, that's very normal. Did you know that? To have doubts in your walk as a Christian, doubt that God exists, or the reliability of the scriptures, that's not abnormal. Numerous biblical characters uh, go through that. Abraham, well, his whole life is that. God makes promises to him, he trusts them. He wobbles, God makes a promise, he trusts, he wobbles. And he makes progress, so we'll see it when we get eventually to chapter 22, the, the climax, the pinnacle of his faith. He, he, he trusts God at a, a great moment of crisis. But he's bumpy along the way. Now that is an enormous encouragement, I think. Because even if you've never so far as a Christian had bumps along the way, most people do have doubts. Or if you're here, he's not as a Christian and still uncertain that's okay. I mean, become a Christian, please. Um, that's the one, most wonderful decision you'll ever make. But it's not, I'm not surprised that you have some questions. Now, for those who are Christians, before we really jump in, let me just remind or uh, maybe uh, refresh in your memory: uh, doubts, intellectual doubts in particular, they normally, they very rarely come on their own. Almost always, they're attached to something going on in another arena of life. So I try and summarize it with four C's is often the way. One of these C's comes along and affects, causes, uh, encourages intellectual doubts. So the first one, straightforward, is circumstances. Circumstances. So you're going through life and then all of a sudden goes wrong. You lose your job, you get sick and you say, what is this, Lord? How can I trust in you when my life goes badly? And then perhaps you throw in... Uh, a little bit of stress and exhaustion and sleepless nights, and so you're slightly at your wit's end, and unsurprisingly, you are run down, and you think, it is this true? Circumstances have conspired to make you, th- I'm not so sure now. That's a big difference, makes a big impact. Sometimes the most godly thing you can do in life is go to bed early, or go on holiday, or go and see your GP. And you may, you know, if you really run down, really exhausted, depressed, you, that, that would help. And when your circumstances have tilted back a little bit, then address your doubts and you realize, they oh, they're not so bad after all. Circumstance is one of the big things that exacerbates doubt. That's the first. The second will be culture. There's a great cultural pressure to conform. That is obvious. I hope you realize that. But true in this field as well. It's just worth remembering. It. If everyone is doing something or thinking something and we're different, that has an impact upon us. Silly example, tomorrow. Tomorrow you go to work, and to your great surprise, or in your studies, whatever it may be, to your great surprise, everyone is wearing flip-flops. It's May, but it's 10 degrees and it's raining. But still, everyone is wearing flip-flops. And you get home and you say to your friends or housemates, it's really, oh, you're wearing flip-flops too. And they're not trendy, modern things that um, tone your muscles while you walk, whatever they're called. They're the nasty 1970s ones that sort of have that big lump between your toe and, you know, it's really uncomfortable. And you think this is this deeply impractical. Why is everyone except for me wearing flip-flops? It's ridiculous in a wet May. Complete, I'm wearing my shoes. Everyone else is mad. Until eventually everyone's wearing flip-flops, you're the only one. You're going to wear flip-flops. You're going to give in. And go to M&S and get yourself a pair of flip-flops, even though it's raining. Just... Because we're, we're creatures who like to be in the herd. And if most of the people you spend time with say, you're thinking about the Christian faith, well, that's a daft thing to do. You're a Christian, well, why would you do that? I mean, you're bright, you know, you're very clever at what you do, and yet you just have this one little, where you lose your, what is that? Now, if that's all you hear all the time, that will impact you. Of course it will. Of course that'll have an impact. So don't put away your intellectual doubts, but at the same time, Spend some time with people who are Christians, who say, look, here's the truth and here's why I believe it. And you think, okay, yeah, you're sensible, you're, you know, you're bright enough too and you believe this. I'm not mad. Yeah? So circumstances, the culture has an impact. Third, corruption, our own corruption. Inherently, we're wonky trolleys that just drift off. Inherently we don't want to follow god that is the nature of sin within us and even if you're a christian that is still within you your inclination is always i just want to do things my own way and not you know on most things i'm quite happy to follow god but on this issue i just want to go my own way and do my own thing we're inherently like that we're corrupt that's how we're built and so doubt sometimes intellectual doubt sort of play into our desire to be independent I may have shared this before, but years ago, eight years ago, whatever it was, I remember going to a bookshop with a friend, Christian friend. He wanted to buy the, uh, the Dawkins book, The God Delusion. And um, so we went along, and we were talking about it. Anyway, he took it to the counter, and uh, the girl at the counter said, Oh, I love that book. And my friend said, Oh, why I'm particular? Because if he's right, I can do whatever I want. That's incredibly honest. But sometimes we feel that way. Do you know, I actually, I don't want to follow God in this area of my life in this, whatever it is, this financial area. I don't really want to, in this romantic area. I don't want to follow God in this area of my life. So maybe he, but you know what? There are good reasons to doubt him. Off we go. So just another, so uh, circumstances, culture, corruption, the, the last of the four C's, I think, which makes a difference, complaining. Complaining. If all we ever do is complain, it's no surprise that your faith is wobbly. Lord, you are You basically, you never say this quite so bluntly, but Lord, basically I think you're mean because my life is disappointing. I am disappointed and therefore I'm not so sure you're there. I am disappointed you haven't given me this job, this amount of income, this a husband, this sort of family. I am disappointed you haven't given me these things. So I wonder, I wonder in my disappointment, and that plays into doubts. You know, the great antidote there is thanksgiving. It's the great antibiotic for many problems in the Christian life. But thanksgiving, giving thanks and reminding. Actually, I haven't got all those things, but you you have given me health. You've given me enough money to live on. You've given me some great friends. You've, you've given me a, a church family to encourage me. You've, well, you've given me your son for eternity so I can live for eternity. You, you've given me quite a lot. And actually, before you realize it, oh, quite good reasons to follow the Lord. Look, I may have heard that list before, but those four, uh, circumstances, culture, corruption that's within, complaining, they're all going on in life, and they will feed doubt, intellectual doubt, questions you have about the Christian faith, very rare that it's on its own. Normally, it's a summary way of putting it, but those four feed into it. It's just worth bearing that in mind when doubts come up. Okay, let's have a look then. Let's have a look at Abraham, enough of that. Um, Well, no, that's what it's all about, really. But let's have a look at Abraham himself. Chapter 15. What is going on with Abraham? Chapter 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. After this, after what? Well, if you were here last week, after chapter 14, actually doesn't matter if you were here last week, it does come after chapter 14. But chapter 14, if you remember, uh, Abraham's been off to war. Uh, his foolish nephew, Lot, has got himself in trouble. Uh, Lot was a prisoner of war because he was living in Sodom, where he shouldn't have been living. Uh, Lot gets captured. Abraham, age 75, mounts up with his 300 men and destroys everyone inside, wins a great battle. After that, if you remember, he turned down the blood money from the king of Sodom who said, oh, you know, you can, you can have a load of money. And Abraham said, I don't want your money. I follow the Lord. I don't want to take money from you. So he's fought a great battle against, well, five kings. Okay, that's after that. After that, or after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid. Now, oh, I learned this week, that's the, that's the first time God says that in the Bible. He'll say it another 33 times to different individuals. That's interesting. What does it tell you? Quite often we get afraid. God has to say, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. He says to Abraham, don't be afraid. I am your shield and your very great reward. So I'm the one who protects you, and I'm the one, I am your reward. So it sounds a bit like Abraham thought he was going to need protection. Maybe, age 75, he's fought enough battles. He's slightly fearing retaliation and thinks, you know, I'm a little bit saddlesore after that battle, having fought at age 75. I don't want to get back in the horse. I don't want to get attacked again. God says, don't be afraid. I'll protect you. He may be thinking to himself, you know, I was offered all that money and I turned it down. That was pretty reckless of me. And God says, no, you didn't make a mistake. I'm your reward. So don't be afraid, Abraham. I'll protect you. I gave you victory. I have made you as wealthy as you are. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Again, we touched on this a couple of weeks ago, but a recurrent theme throughout the life of Abraham, and biblically generally, fear is the enemy of faith. Fear of what is in front of us will drive out faith in the God above in all number of ways. We spent some time on this uh, a couple of weeks ago. But fear of what is in front of us will drive out faith in what's above. So we fear the future. We think to ourselves, well, I'm a bit uncertain about what's going on at work. And therefore, I could do this in a corrupt manner. I know I shouldn't. But it'll shore up my position at work. I've just started a new business. I really shouldn't go with that client. But... Uh, if I don't, so he's slightly immoral and corrupt, but I'll go with him anyway. Because fear of the future may drive out faith in God above. Or it just could just be fear of other people. We fear other people's opinions. People say to us, you're daft. You're daft. If you, if you believe that as a Christian, we think, oh, I'm so sure I like your disapproval. We fear their disapproval. So it causes us to doubt our faith in God above. That's just the way it happens. Fear drives out faith. So, Abraham's afraid. God comes, him, God comes to him, verse 1, and says, don't be afraid, Abraham. And Abraham says, that's all right. I'm no longer afraid. Now you've come and spoken to me, and the chapter ends. Almost, but not quite. Three little things, uh, or three, that we're now into it. But um, let me break the text down in these three ways, three points. The first, yeah, break down like this. First, Abraham questioned the Lord. Second, The Lord credited Abraham with righteousness. And the third thing, the Lord promises on his life. The Lord promised on his life. So let's uh, look at the first Then Abraham questioned the Lord. Essentially, Abraham, verse 2, said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abraham said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So Abraham says, okay, it's great you've turned up in a vision. I like it when you do that. Life is much more simple. But, um, I've got a problem. You've promised me an heir. I'm over 75. Sarah's over 65. It's not looking good. And the only, so it's going to go to my, well, this, this Eliezer, whoever he is, we don't really know. Eliezer's is going to inherit everything. Is that, okay, so that's, that's it. That's the best you've got. Because I, can't, I just can't see that anything more is going to happen. You've taken too long to go about this. I'm not getting any younger. Now again, that's a fairly common reason why people would experience doubt in the Christian faith. Delay. Abraham saying, okay, you made this promise, and I trusted it for a while, but that was then, and that was a few years ago, and so now... Again, I think that's quite common. So people pray about something in the Christian life and it doesn't happen, and that's okay. And they keep praying, and it doesn't happen, and that's all right. And they keep praying, and... Of course, Abraham here has had an explicit promise from God, I'll give you a descendant. And so some of us think, well, okay, I I, I can trust that Jesus will return, but it hasn't happened, and... Getting harder to keep believing, and well, the Lord seems you take a long time to keep your promises 2,000 odd years and counting for Jesus to come back. And so, delay can cause us to doubt sometimes. But God says, Don't worry about that. Look, living with delay is part of faith in the living God. And if I can put it this way. Set your watch by God's timing, not your own. Does it always feel, I, someone said to me, this to me this week, I thought it was a classic uh, on Thursday night uh, God is always late, but He's always on time. He was saying, It always seems to me that God is late. I always, you know, I want something and I want it on a Monday and God turns up on the you know, a month later and provides the answer to my prayer. And I thought I needed it on the Monday, but in fact it came in the perfect time. God is always late, but not really. He's always on time. Yeah, that's right. Set your watch by God's timing. He's the one who knows the time in which things need to happen. You learn that way. Living with delay is very much a part of faith in God. That just happens all the time. Uncertainty. When will things take place? That's part of it. He teaches us through that. You learn. I was with a friend on Wednesday night. He's a soldier in the army. And uh, there's a 60% chance that before the end of the uh, calendar year, he'll uh, be promoted as a colonel and dispatched overseas. But he'll have three days' notice of that. He'll be told on a Friday, if you want your promotion, you need to go to... Afghanistan, Somalia, wherever, it, be. it could be anywhere in the world, wherever these things open up, you've got to go on Monday. So you have about three days' notice. That's quite a big deal when you've got a family and two kids. And uh, I said, so how are you, know, you guys doing, dealing with that uncertainty? He said, well, you know, God has taught us. We're used to it by now. God has trained us that delay doesn't mean he's not good. We just have to trust him. It's often true in the Christian life. He teaches us things don't happen as fast as we want, there's delay, we have to learn to trust him, he expands our faith, it's very common, very common it goes that way. But Abraham questions the Lord. Now before we move on, do you not find that encouraging? That Abraham is allowed to ask his questions, and God isn't irritated or annoyed with him in any sense here. There's no frustration. Oh, Abraham, let me go through it with you again. There's nothing like that. He's allowed to question. Abraham questions the Lord. That's a very normal part of faith. Isn't that encouraging? Abraham, in a sense, just rubs out some caricatures of the Christian faith. Christians are not those who just stick their heads in the sand and ignore the facts of life and carry on believing in Jesus, whatever the... No. Abraham says, I'm struggling to believe this. It's all pretty unlikely. That's very normal. Abraham ruins the caricature of just someone who sticks their head in the sand. It's very encouraging, I think, in that regard. He ruins the caricature that some people say, I'm not a very good Christian because I have doubts. So I look at her over there and she never has doubts. She's always buoyant and smiling and, you know, seems to trust in the Lord, whatever happens. I always have doubts. I'm not a very good Christian. Abraham's quite a good believer, apparently. Whatever that means. But Abraham has faith. He's not lambasted or, or criticized here. Very normal. Abraham asks questions. That's part, taking your questions to the Lord is normal. Having them, taking them to him, is part of living the Christian faith. What is God's response? God's response comes then in verses 4 and 5. It's very gentle. The word of the Lord came to him again. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took Abraham outside and said, look up at the heavens. Count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I don't want to be naff about it, but in my mind, this conjures up a picture. God puts his arm around, whatever that means. God puts his arm around Abraham and says, come with me. Come on, lad. Come on. Come outside. Look at the stars. How many are there? Where's well, one, two? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Your descendants will be like that. Abraham, I'm actually going to answer your prayers beyond your wildest dreams. It's very tender with Abraham here. It doesn't criticize him in any sense at all. The Lord is patient with our questions. Let me put it this way. Uh, last Christmas. From about this summer onwards, actually, summer last year uh, until Christmas, in our household, Lego is quite a big thing. All all of the gentlemen of the household quite enjoy Lego, and um, Lego. But anyway, my so my uh, uh, seven-year-old, from uh, birthday onwards, really said, "Look, what I'd really like for Christmas, what I'd really love, is the Lego Death Star, which is a very big Lego model, four thousand pieces, massive thing. And um, I'd really like the Lego Death Star." Okay, now I knew some friends had bought that for him as a gift. So he could indeed have that as his Christmas present. So, Daddy, I'd really like the Lego Death Star. Fine, you can have it for Christmas.
0: <gasps> wow. Great. Okay.
1: A week later, Daddy, it's very rare, you know. You can't buy it in all the shops. It's a limited edition.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, I know. You can have it for Christmas. <gasps> really? Yes. A week later, Daddy, I've been looking on eBay. (laughs) And they're so rare that they go for hundreds of pounds. There's a second-hand market in eBay. What are you doing looking at eBay? (laughs) I was doing it with mummy, okay. Daddy, are you sure it's going to be possible to get hold of one of these things? They're, They're incredibly expensive, you know. Yes, you can. Okay. Eventually what I did was uh, I, I had this thing stashed at work in the office and so someone took a photo of me holding the box. And I had a calendar in my hand as well so you could see what date it was. And the next time he said, Daddy, I'm very nervous you're not going to be able to get hold of this for Christmas. I showed him the photo. Wow. Wow. It's great. Ruined Christmas. Took 18 hours to build. But... Um, <laughs> I did ruin Christmas, but uh, it was great fun. Now, the thing is, I don't get irritated when he asks those questions. Why? Because he really wanted this thing. His questions were a sign of his desire. There, were, there was some understanding of how difficult, how expensive this thing was. And God is the same with us. When we come to him and say, look, Lord, I am struggling. Often, actually, that's an expression of our desire. I, I want this to be true, but I'm... I don't want to be taken for a fool here. Look, I want this to be true, but if it is, it is, it's so wonderful. I'm, I'm, I just can't believe it's true. It's just too good to be true. And he says, yeah, I know. Let me assure you. Let me assure you again and again. So Abraham questioned the Lord. Don't be surprised. It's normal. Abraham's response, verse six. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Well, let's just look at the first bit for a moment. Abraham believed the Lord. Romans, if you read Romans 4 and nothing else, you wouldn't really know about the wobbles. Romans 4 is, yeah, Abraham, he trusted, hope beyond hope. And, um, of course, there's a sense in which both are true. Abraham looked at the facts. I'm 75 at least at this stage, maybe 85, and she's 75, my wife. He looked at the facts and said, this isn't possible. Abraham faced the facts of life, but then he faced the fact of God. And you need to reckon with both. Don't be naive, you need to face the facts, but you need to face the fact of God as well. And he can do all things. So Abraham believed. He believed. Second thing to say, let's pick up some pace. Uh, Second thing, um, what did the Lord do? The Lord credited Abraham with righteousness. Righteousness. He credited Abraham with righteousness. Now, verse 6, it looks innocuous, small little verse, but uh, from our reading of the New Testament, this is a crucial moment, a crucial moment that faith is credited with righteousness. It's the only time in the Old Testament this happens, but numerous times in the New Testament, Paul uh, and uh, um, and writer of the Hebrews will pick up on these things and say, that this is the faith that Abraham had here that is mag- That is normal faith. God credits righteousness to that. Let me just explore that for a moment with you. Righteousness. It's a legal term. The simplest way of saying it's the opposite of condemned. In a court of law, you're either condemned or you are righteous. Righteous is to have a standing before the Lord that's acceptable before him. Morally perfect. Now, understand this rightly. Righteousness is not right behavior, it is right standing. And God does not say to Abraham, because of your, your faith earns you righteousness, but that because you have faith in me, I give you righteousness. God does not say in the Old Testament, I give you the Ten Commandments, how are you getting on with them? you failed. Oh well, Abraham. But look at your faith. Your faith is really impressive. Your faith is so strong, Abraham. I'm going to give, your faith earns you righteousness. It is not that. Abraham has... Wibbly-wobbly, just about trusting faith in God. And God says, because you trust in me, I give you, I credit you, righteousness. So the important thing is this. Your standing before the Lord does not depend upon how strong your faith is, but that you have faith in a strong God. That is so important. Your righteousness, if you're a Christian, does not depend upon how strong your faith is, but that you have faith in a strong God. It's not that we whip up righteousness within. It's that it's there and we just grasp hold of it just... Okay, let me just try and give a little example of this. Uh, When 15 years ago I was a school teacher, Uh, one of my good friends uh, on one of the schools I taught was a woman named Nolene. Uh, She and I were the sort of the young teachers of the school and we organized all sorts of trips. She was uh, in the history department, the same as me. So uh, if we could organize a trip to somewhere we wanted to go, we did. So we organized history trips to Paris, to Berlin, to Vienna. To the ski slopes of Vermont. Um, <laughs> we just about, you know, got away with these things. Good. I mean, we wanted to do one to Australia, but I just couldn't justify it historically. Sorry about. That. <laughs> <laughs> very cheap. Very poor. But we organized all these trips and, uh, always go with Nolene. Now, no, she hated flying. Worse than if you've got a long-term memory, worse than BA Barracas. She hated Flying. The only way you could get her on the plane was with a considerable amount of Valium. And you'd, you know, it'd be terrible. You'd get there and you'd sit down in the plane and she'd just be nervous and, and tapping everything. And, uh, and she'd just start asking all these questions. How old is this plane to the stewardess? How old is this plane? How many journeys has it taken? How often is it checked? Who are the crew members? How many crew members check it? How often? It's like you'd calm down. And then she'd read off all these stats about plane crashes. <laughs> Terrible, terrible to sit next to her. Um, now she so went all these some of these were long flights of course, but basically it was only takeoff and landing. And she hated flying. She really struggled to believe that the plane wouldn't crash. I sat there, I had no problems. I had full confidence in the pilot and the plane itself. Who got there first? We both got there precisely the same time. The issue is not how confident you were in the plane or the pilot. The issue is you're on it. Now, obviously, it's more pleasant to travel on an airplane where you can relax and read and enjoy than it is to travel on an aircraft where you're just nervous and and shaking the whole way. And it is more pleasant to live the Christian life with confidence in the promises of the Lord than it is to go live the Christian life wobbling and bouncing around and going from one doubt to the next. Obviously, that's true, but the issue is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. It doesn't matter if you think the plane is weak or if you think the plane is going to get there. You have doubts the plane is going to get there. If you're on the plane, you get there. It doesn't matter if you never have a doubt in your life as a Christian in Jesus Christ or you just ebb and flow and have uncertainties. If your faith is in him... You are righteous. Do you see why this matters? Faith is not your righteousness. The strength of your faith does not determine your righteousness. Faith is not your righteousness. Faith in Christ. And he gives you righteousness. There is an enormous difference. And it matters. Abraham believed the Lord. And and so the Lord credited Abraham with righteousness. It's the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. Do you see that difference? It's <laughs> so important. Okay. Uh, Abraham questioned the Lord. The Lord credited Abraham with righteousness. Last thing. The Lord promised on his life. The Lord promised on his life. Verse 7. Uh, the Lord also said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Um, um, can I ask another question, please? So verse eight, Oh sovereign Lord, how, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? I'm just struggling a little bit. I'm not, it's not a lack of faith, just a lack of assurance. Can you give me some encouragement, please, that this will really happen? And again, the Lord doesn't grumble. The Lord doesn't say, Oh, Abraham, I only told you last night. He, well, what does he do? He tells Abraham to cut open a load of animals and then walks between them. Odd. Let's be honest, Uh, verse uh, 9 down, it is a strange ceremony with all these animals. But the explanation comes in verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. It's his, or literally, he cut a covenant with Abraham. Here is an ancient way of making a contract, classically between a king and his subjects. So uh, a king would conquer a nation and say, okay, from now on I'm going to protect you. Here's what I will do. Here's what you will do. Let's cut open these animals. And we walk between the animals and we're saying essentially, if I break this contract, so shall I be cut open and destroyed. I'll be cursed if I break my contract. So, it, you know, it's a Jeremiah 34 verse 18 is the, is the clearest reference if you want to chase that down. It's a contract, but we don't do it that way. But we kind of understand this. We don't own the house we live in at the moment. We own a flat down in South London. And uh, we're the landlords and there are tenants. And whenever new new, um, tenants move in, there's a contract. And it sets out landlord's obligations, tenant's obligations. We both sign it and date it. And that's the modern equivalent. This is just a lot more vivid. We could do this next time tenants move in. I could gather a squirrel and the local cat and a chainsaw Vroom! and uh, cut open these animals and, um, and say, look, this will happen to me if I break my contract and it'll happen to you. In fact, I'm quite liking the idea. Um, it'll probably stop some of the crazy tenants we've had sort of throwing darts at the walls and causing damage, that sort of thing. It's a very solemn, vivid way of signing a contract. It's what it is. But the shocking thing here is when you get to verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, it's only the king that walks through, not the tenant. Only the Lord walks through, not Abraham. So you see verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces smoking pillar pill. well it's clear in the old testament most clear in the book of exodus that the smoking pillar the fiery pillar that's a symbol of the lord the lord passes through these animals and says may i be cursed may i die if i break my promise to you abraham and abraham what does he have to do nothing Nothing. Back in verse 12, he's fast asleep. He's seeing all this happen in a vision. And God tells him again, verses 13 to 16, I'll look in the future. There's going to be a long delay before this happens, about 400 years. Quite common, isn't it? You get a delay, God says. Don't be thrown by the delay. But the important thing is, the Lord makes here an unconditional promise to Abraham. I will do this. And I'm not asking anything of you. So this is the modern equivalent. So I get new tenants, we get new tenants in our flat, and the, ten- and the landlord's obligations, I'll furnish the flat and, and pay the water and, and make sure it's dry, make sure the gas doesn't blow up, those sort of things. And uh, tenants' obligations, Nothing. Well, what happens if we don't pay the rent? It's fine, I'll pay it. What happens if we trash the place? Fine, I'll restore it. What happens if we burn it down? It's no problem, I'll pay to have it rebuilt. No obligations upon you. I I take them all on myself. That's what God is saying here. I am unconditionally promising this. It's unconditional and one-sided. Abraham, I will. You just shut up, Abraham, because you'll get it wrong. I will. I'm not requiring anything of you, Abraham, at this point. I will. I will bless you. I will fulfill my promise despite your weak faith, despite your doubts, despite the disobedience you're going to show in chapter 16. I will do this. I will. God says, I'll guarantee that this will happen on my life. I'll die rather than see this promise fall. And for us living now, Paul explains it in Romans chapter 4. Of course, ultimately, that promise of God, we see its fulfillment in the death of Jesus Christ. Where the king does die, if I can put it that way. God himself comes down and dies in the man, Jesus Christ. Not because he's broken his promise, he has not, but because we have And he says, but you can't pay. I have promised I will do this. He is the landlord of the whole of humanity. And he says as the landlord of this world, look, humanity, look at how you treat one another. Look at how you treat me. You ignore me. You disobey me. You treat one another badly. You've broken your promise as tenants of my world, but I will pay. I'll die in Jesus Christ rather than see this promise fail or fall. That is extraordinary. God says, I'll promise to guarantee this, Abraham, on my life. And so again, in Jesus Christ, God is making a promise to us. That's why we can sing that the old has gone. God will complete this work. It's completely done. We can say that even though it's not physically true, but because he can't break his promise. If you're a Christian trusting in Jesus Christ, he cannot let you go. He said, I'd rather curse myself than let you go. It's extraordinary. So in Jesus Christ, the Lord says, you are righteous if you trust in him. Not the strength of your faith, but because he is strong. You're righteous. I'll give you righteousness. It doesn't depend upon your behavior because you'll fail. My promise still stands. It doesn't depend upon the strength of your faith, because that'll waver. It's because my promise still stands. It doesn't depend upon whether you wobble in your faith. My promise still stands to you in Jesus Christ. God says, I will. I will. So Abraham, he's the hero of faith. He's a man who has doubts. If you're a Christian, you'll have doubts. If you're here not yet as a Christian, you may, you know, you have serious doubts perhaps about what to do. Look to Jesus Christ. That's where God has said, whatever your failings, whatever your struggles, I will die rather than let you go. Trust in that. And he gives you righteousness a right standing with him. Let's pray together. father, as we'll sing in a moment, wonderful words put effectively onto the mouth of Jesus Christ. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I cannot desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. And our father, we thank you that's true. Many of us will have doubts at times in our life. We know there are a combination of factors that lead into us uh, having our doubts in you. But thank you that if we're trusting in Jesus Christ, no matter how wavering our faith at the moment, he is strong and he will keep us. And we thank you that you've guaranteed that by taking the curse that was ours upon the cross. So, Father, we'll be as we look to him. Grow in our assurance and live for you. Amen.